Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to In Tandem, Increasing Diversity and Inclusion in Active Travel. It's the 17th in our series of Urban Transport Next conversations uh, on the topics that will help shape the future of urban transport. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Becky Fuller. I'm Assistant Director at the Urban Transport Group, and we're the hosts of this ongoing series of conversations. Um, UTG is the UK's network of city region transport authorities uh, serving 20 million, over 20 million people. Our job is to make sure that transport plays full part in making our city regions healthier, happier, greener, fairer, more prosperous. And I'm really pleased to see so many people have signed up to take part in this event today. We've got a really good lineup for you too. Um, so I'll just introduce our speakers. Um, first up, we have Rachel Aldred, who is Professor of Transport and Director of the Active Travel Academy at the University of Westminster. She's the author of more than 50 peer-reviewed um, peer publications on the topic of active travel, and she's the winner of the ESRC Prize for Outstanding Impact on Public Policy. We also have Adam Tranter, uh, the first cycling and walking commissioner for the West Midlands, appointed by the mayor uh, to steer the city region's cycling and walking plans. And finally, we have Anila McKenna, uh, an equality, diversity, uh, inclusion and wellbeing professional for more than 20 years, founder of consultancy More Diversity. She's also a professional mountain bike coach and guide. So welcome, everybody. Um, you can also be part of the conversation uh, by submitting questions via the Q&A box on Zoom. Please only put questions in the Q&A box, not in the chat, because otherwise we'll lose them and we won't get to ask your questions. Um, keep the questions short and sharp, and you can also upvote the questions that you most want answered so that we're more likely to um, pick those up. And we'll be picking up the questions from the audience in the last 15 to 20 minutes of the session. And of course, you can also tweet us at UTG underscore UK and use the hashtag UTG next. OK, so I can see attendees are still creeping up gradually, but we're short on time. So let's just let's just get going and get to know our, our guests a little bit more. So, Rachel, perhaps I could come to you first. How did you get into this this line of work? What what's your passion? What drives you? First, I got interested in active travel when I was doing my PhD, and I spent a lot of time during my PhD. This is sort of um, mid two thousands, walking around an area of East London that is very severed by um, you know big roads, but also rail lines, historic infrastructure like uh, the canal. And I'm a sociologist by background, so I'm really interested in inequalities, power dynamics, and so on. And I just got fascinated by the way in which you know some people's mobility through the area um, was completely at odds with the ability of other peoples to get to the shops. There were horrible pedestrian underpasses and so on. And I guess it really went from there. I just thought, you know, this is something where, um, you know, social, so the interaction of social science and walking and cycling is just fascinating to me. Absolutely. And so relevant for today's session. Um, Adam, can I come to you next? What's your background? Yeah, so I'm not from a transport background at all, actually. I'm um, from a communications background. I have a communications agency. Um, but how I fell into the transport world is um, being a, a, a kind of user of our of our streets and realising that they didn't work for, for everybody, really. So I have twin boys. Um, they're eight now. But when they were in their side by side um, pushchair, I couldn't access my local path on the National Cycle Network because of the barriers that had been created uh, on that. So I started to see uh, issues that people might face. Um, 
because I am, I have been in cycling historically. Uh, I sort of experimented with a cargo bike and and turned up to the school gates in it. And so many parents came up to me and said, "Oh, I would like to, but or I wish I could do that, but." And there was always uh, a but, basically. And I think once you start to see uh, these very valid reasons that people aren't doing something they'd actually quite like to do, mm-hmm. you sort of can't unsee them. Um, so I, I've somewhat escalated um, because you know I've kind of gone from being annoyed about my local area to um, being appointed by, by Andy Street, the mayor of the West Midlands, to uh, sort of supercharge the, the plans in the West Midlands. Um, but it comes from a, a basic need of wanting to be able to get to school safely with my my kids, um, which I think is a good good and very normal place to, to start. Absolutely. I think that since having children myself, I've been far more aware of the barriers that exist to, to walking and to cycling because it's you know just not always safe for very young children to do that. And yeah, being a double buggy user, well, <laughs> that is going to be an issue. Um, and I think we'll come on to more topics around pavement parking and things like that um, later on. Um, Anila, can I go come to you? What's your background? Thanks, Rebecca. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm I'm not transport at all, <laughs> um, but I'm very passionate about bikes and getting people outdoors, um, and particularly those groups that are marginalised in society. And I think it comes from my own experience, really. So I've worked in the public sector as an equality and diversity professional. But in 2020, um, I um, what happened with Black Lives Matter and the impact of that on the cycling world and the, the outdoors specifically. Um, and I think it was a combination of lockdown as well and more people getting outdoors. But actually what that really opened my eyes to the fact that I've been cycling, I'm a mountain bike guide, coach, but actually I don't see anybody like me in my space. Um, And whilst I've been doing a lot of work to to campaign around uh, gender equality, uh, based on my own barriers and experience, um, I I realised that we need to do more to to get more people from ethnic minority backgrounds out into the outdoors, getting them to cycle, getting them to to enjoy the experience because we know that that experience can be a positive one, has lots of um, long-term benefits, um, you know, nationally, but but also, you know, personally for, for, for communities as well. So, so I think for me, that led me to leave the public sector, set up my own consultancy, take the reins and um, work with um, organisations across the, the outdoor sector, working with the likes of Mountain Rescue, Mountain Training, uh, British Cycling, um, uh, various bike brands um, to help them in their journeys and getting them to think about what does inclusion mean for them and how to make that connection between community and, and best practice. Thanks. Thank you all. And sort of picking up on something that Adam said in his introduction around some of the barriers that he's faced um, walking uh, with a double buggy, has it, have Anila, Rachel, have you encountered any barriers to walking and cycling more? And what are the things that make walking and cycling work for you? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, uh, I mean, I, uh, I didn't really get to ride a, a bicycle until I was in my 20s. Um, I, it wasn't seen as something that was uh, right. It's a sort of combination of um, being being a girl, but also being from an ethnic minority background and uh 
things that were perhaps more risky, uh, i.e. falling off your bike, <laughs> um, getting dirty, getting muddy, perhaps wasn't things that girls would uh, should do. Um, and so for me, I think I, I had a bit of a fear of bikes and it was only in my 20s that I got introduced to it to, to learn how to cycle. Um, and I think for me, the, the main barrier was that fear around sort of technical elements of riding a bike. So yes, you can ride a bike and how to ride a bike, but then you take yourself further than your short journeys. How do you go in longer journeys? What if you get a puncture? How mm -hmm. can I fix chain? All of these things were really important to me. And so um, for me, I had to, you know, sort of challenge some of those stereotypes and and what I'd been programmed into believing what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. Mm -hmm. And uh, looking at developing those skills for myself, going to, to classes, finding out how to think about the mechanics of the bike. And that gave me the confidence to be self-sufficient, to, to get out there. So I suppose um, it's a it's almost like imposter syndrome, you know, well, that, that's not for me um, mm -hmm. because of my um, my own lived experience. And I, I think from from that point of view, you know, you, you, I, I was able to to do something about it to to enable me to give me the confidence to get out and and um, enjoy cycling. It's really interesting. And, and Rachel, how about you? Have you encountered any barriers? Well, I was originally kind of one of the fearless few, I guess, in that I started cycling in London in the early 2000s when the cycling environment, I mean, it's still very far from perfect, but it was a lot more hostile then. And I remember I was working, I was living in Hackney, working in Southwark. Um, and so I noticed that a couple of the guys at work cycled and I asked them about it and they told me that, no, it'd be far too dangerous. I, you know, I wouldn't want to do it. So I think I saw that as a challenge. Um, and I did start doing it and it was at times pretty hairy, but I was, you know, um, in my mid-twenties and I guess thought I was immortal cycling around um, Old Street Roundabout and so on. And there were so few women cyclists then we would kind of smile and wave at each other. It just felt kind of unusual to see people. Um, and I think as I've got older, you know, it's been, um, you know, that kind of experience is kind of less, um, it gets less and less pleasant. And also actually having positively pleasant experiences of walking and cycling, you know, really enjoying sociably cycling side by side, enjoying walking in green space, appreciating street trees, greenery and so on. That, you know, not only can the environment be positive, can not be positively hostile, but it can actually be pleasurable and enjoyable and a really, really pleasant part of part of one's day. And unfortunately, very often it's not like that. But when it is like that, it can just, you know, the benefits for well-being, obviously there's, you know, substantial benefits in terms of physical activity. Activity, but the benefits for well-being when walking and cycling environments are pleasant and welcoming um, for everyone, I think, are just so great. Yes. And let's set the scene a little bit more and, and think about where we are now in terms of cycling and walking and, and social inclusion. The government set the target for 50% of all journeys into towns and cities to be walked or cycled by 2030. I could come to you, Adam, on this one. How close are we to that goal? And can we get there without playing, paying more attention to inclusion and diversity? Yeah, so um, I, I want to say it's good news, and I think it, it probably is good news, but we are still need, quite far away from where we need to be. Um, the, the good news is that we're not as far away as some people might think, um, but purely really down to the... Um, the sheer numbers of people walking um, in, in the West Midlands, especially. So our data team have worked on um, kind of using all the data sources that we have, also the, the, the various different travel surveys that, that, that we do on a regular basis and also the government does. And 
and ultimately come to the conclusion that, that walking and cycling um, are around 44% of uh, trips in the West Midlands. Um, uh, currently, it's doing a refresh from that baseline. Um, but uh, I can tell you that, that cycling is currently uh, not pulling its weight uh, compared to its potential because it, it's about 1% of, uh, of, uh, of those stages, so of all stages. Um, so we we know that um, you know in many cases we're we're uh, we're doing well, but we really need to focus more on what the barriers are to people walking, um, especially in Birmingham. Twenty five percent of car journeys are under one mile um, across the West Midlands. Forty two percent, forty one percent, sorry, of car journeys are under two miles uh, across the whole region. So um, we need to look at those barriers, and then cycling is kind of just. It's just a huge, you know, everywhere that's made an effort has shown that there is a huge untapped potential to grow that number considerably. So while that number is very low, it's only a reflection of, of the fact that we're uh, just getting started. There, the potential is is much uh, much greater than that. And uh, actually, cycling opens up journeys to many more people um, because it's door to door transport. It's cheap. It's convenient. So if we can nail the safety aspect which is what puts most people off, then we'll be in a good place. And the evidence seems to suggest that um, there is a, a latent demand of people in the West Midlands that want to choose active travel. Um, we work with Sustrans on their walking and cycling index in 2021, and uh, the figure of people who regularly cycle is 6% of the West Midlands population. Those who occasionally cycle is 17%. Um, but there's a big portion of do not cycle, but would like to mm. over the whole population. That's 32 percent. Interestingly, with people from ethnic minority groups, that figure goes up to 45 percent. So we're actually um, seeing that there is this latent demand. And actually, we just need to get on and give the people what they want. Um, follow that up with Anila. Um In terms of um, ethnic minorities being underrepresented in cycling, what are the main barriers that those groups are facing is it the cultural is it the cultural barriers that that impression that this is just not for me and you've got to see it to to be it kind of thing and is there a difference between the cycling and the walking aspect I think Adam said it really well there actually the interest is more from people from ethnic minority backgrounds and that's what the research is saying so whilst there is that slow increase in cycling and walking um, the desire is there. And I think what we're finding with ethnic minority communities is that, you know, and I've spoken to many groups that were second generation um, coming to the UK, perhaps were focused on, on the struggle of just surviving um, uh, being a migrant and coming to the coming to the country, but actually, you know, thinking about education and wealth, but actually there's more time to think about your own leisure time. Um, and there's more of the third generation, the younger population are starting to think about that. And, and when you start to break down the statistics of those that are walking, it's actually those that are under the age of 34 that are, are much more inclined to want to get out there and walk and cycle. So, um, so it's interesting when we think about the intersectionality there as well in terms of ethnic minorities. Maybe you might not see the older generation, but you might see some of the some of the younger generation. I think one of the things to also say is, you know, if we think about urban areas, the majority of people of ethnic minority backgrounds in the UK live in um, in urban areas. 
3%, um, uh, I think it's 3% in urban areas and those that access the countryside, because I do a lot of work in the in with outdoor organisations, only 1% of visitors, you know, um, actually are um, access to national parks, 1% of people from ethnic minority backgrounds, um, but also, um, you know, 1.9% of black people live in the countryside and 2.6% of Asian people live in the countryside. So there's real potential in terms of actual travel and using the bike in terms in the cities and then having the infrastructure in cities to be able to encourage communities to to get out there but i think what we need to think about is how do we make that connection to right we've got the interest but how do we get people engaged how do we get let people see that actually this is something for you um, and whilst there are barriers that um are faced by by the communities themselves it's also about the organizations to think about how they can actively um, engage with grassroots groups to encourage them to get out there and recognize the benefits of of what what cycling and walking can bring yes perhaps i could come to you what what are what does the national research and and data tell us about the demographics of people who do walk and cycle um, regularly? Are, are certain groups over or underrepresented? And and of course, I'm imagining it will vary uh, for walking compared to cycling as well. Yeah, exactly. And picking up on what Anila and Adam um, have just said, you know, the picture for um, cycling is is very unequal. Um, and I think it's that's very very different from contexts where. Um, we see where, where cycling is widespread, where we see a very different picture. And I was lucky enough to be involved in a really fantastic paper led by Rahul Girl at the Institute, Indian Institute of Technology, um, where we looked at countries and continents um, across the world. We looked at rates of cycling. We looked at participation by age and gender. And places where there's a lot of cycling, you know, in many cases there's a higher mode share for women than men. And certainly, you know, it's, it's often um, it's often equal. So the fact that we have a situation where women, um, men cycle three times more than women um, is, you know, that's that's characteristic of low cycling context. It's not like that in places like the Netherlands and Japan. Similarly, the inequalities in age, we have massive inequalities in age. The drop off with cycling at older ages is really substantial. That's not the case, that kind of sharp drop off in those other contexts. So, but the takeaway I would say from that is I don't think it, that means, oh, we can sit back and if we get more cycling, if, of course, you know, those things will sort themselves out. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it shows that if we want more cycling, we need to focus on those underrepresented groups. You know, we're not going to get mass cycling without women, without older people, children, ethnic minority people, disabled people, without participation from all those groups. And, you know, at the moment, the cycling environment um, in this country is still often quite hostile. Um, but there are additional, you know, we shouldn't be taking the perspective of the working age white man cycling to work. That is a minority of the population. And we need to think about, you know, for instance, um, women often do a lot more trip chaining. They may be taking kids to school, going on to work, going to do the shopping and so on. If we just build routes from where people live to the centre of town, you know, that's not meeting the majority of those journeys. And no wonder, um, you know, we're not meeting the of women who, as people pointed out, would like to cycle. So, you know, we really need to take the perspective uh, of, of people who are currently excluded. And there's also an issue in terms of the transport planning and policy making workforce and hierarchy as well. And actually, who is making those decisions, I think. In terms of walking, just very briefly, um, in, in some respects, you could say, oh, well, walking's better because it's a lot more equitable, which it is. And women um, walk somewhat more than men. 
Um, but it's also an equity issue. Very often um, people walk, they don't feel they have any choice but to walk. And, you know, if they had an alternative, you know, if they had a car available, perhaps they would drive because often the walking environment is not great. You know, there are underpasses. It takes ages to cross the road. Pavements are uneven. You know, a whole range of problems, cars parked on the footway. And therefore, we have a real responsibility to create better walking environments for those people who are walking at the moment, as well as attracting new people to walk. Absolutely. And just picking up on some of the, the points you mentioned there, Rachel, Adam said before that he feels them that safety is what puts most people off cycling more. Would you agree that that's the main barrier? Because I guess when you look at the Netherlands, um, they have the segregated infrastructure, they have that culture of cycling, although it's not as longstanding as people might think. Um, but is it the safety aspects that we really need to address to crack that inclusion? Uh, I would say providing, you know, safe, protected infrastructure for cycling um, is an absolute prerequisite, um, but it's not the only thing that we need to address. You know, safety is also in terms of social safety. It's social, you know, it's for instance, you know, building cycle routes through deserted housing estates will not be perceived as safe for many people, particularly after dark, particularly women. Um, you know, research that my colleague Aquesio Sai led um, with black men cycling in London, you know, issues around um, racism, racial assault, racial harassment, police harassment, and so on. Those were also very important. So, you know, it's absolutely the infrastructure is a prerequisite. Um, but I think we need to deal with safety in its widest um, sense. And also, you know, um, not people not dying or being injured is so vital. But, you know, we should also be aiming for that, you know, positive, enjoyable, pleasant, comfortable, you know, positively in life enhancing experience as well. So, yes, and. Absolutely. And obviously, there's a lot of experience experience and knowledge of the barriers that people face um, out there in academia and in policy. Um, how good are we, though, at gathering the, the full range of lived experiences um, and, and reaching those grassroots groups? Uh, perhaps, Anila, I could come to you. How good are we at actually reaching out to underrepresented groups and ensuring that we're taking account of the widest possible range of lived experiences as we design policy for cycling or walking. We need to get good at getting the data, don't we? That's that's the biggest challenge. Um, and uh, if we've got the data, that gives us the evidence to then inform policy. And one of the things that, that, that is slightly frustrating is we, we don't look at the intersectionalities as well of, say, women of colour, but we may look at women's um, uh, barriers. We may look at um, people from ethnic minorities, but we don't actually connect those those intersectionalities and, and with age as well. So I think data is, is really important to to, um, uh, to to have in place, and I think we need to we need we all need to work on that. You know that in itself can be a barrier um, to to change, um, but also in terms of you know um, capturing uh, the, the diversity of lived experience. I think from a policy point of view. We also need to think more beyond participation when we're thinking about measuring impact. Um, I think one of the things that we're we're focused on a lot is around increasing participation, and that's important. But actually, those that are more marginalised and excluded in society, if they act, if they get access to the outdoors, are able to take those journeys um, by walking or cycling they're three to five times more likely to benefit from that in terms of their well-being and their uh, mental health. And, and given that these groups are most vulnerable in society and experience discrimination, 
then there's a real business case here. There's a real um, moral case and social case for us to be able to focus on this and to be able to cap capture um, uh, uh, that data, to be able to capture actually how happy does it make you feel to ride your bike to work? <laughs> um, how happy does it feel to um, to walk um, uh, to the park and or to, to walk and, and, and do things in the city? You know, these are these are the things that we, we need to capture rather than the participation side of things, because if we then get that data and we, 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 we recognise the impact in terms of well-being, then obviously that's going to lead to better um, policy outcomes and be able to um, justify um, uh, those positive health outcomes, um, uh, education outcomes as well. Sorry, I've got um, I, some work going on in the background, um, and <laughs> I apologise. I'm going to have to shut the window, but, um, but I think we we need to think about those um, measures and impact and how we can actually capture capture data. Um, because if if we don't do that, then um, I think it's just going to. It's like that 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 point about 50% of all journeys when you asked that question and made me think about well who do you mean by those 50% mm -hmm. you know yeah. that, that's a number but actually could that be what what Rachel's saying you know if it's like let's take it into the cycling world is that then predominantly male white able-bodied um heterosexual um or um, actually how much are we actually breaking that down to say well how representative of that is of the UK population um, and, and being, being able to ensure that we're, we're, we're capturing capturing that data. Um, I'm going to stop there and uh, shut my window and pass over to you, Rebecca. <laughs> it might be distracting for you, Anila, but we can't hear it at all at this point. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead. I think, I think um, Anila's touched a little bit on uh, the opportunity and the benefits of making walking and cycling um, more inclusive and understanding the data a little bit before we we move on to that I wondered how much all of this knowledge that we do have and we're you know having the data and the lived experiences is one thing but how much is that taken into account how much are the barriers to walking and cycling understood and taken up in policy and practice for example we know that pavement parking uh, prevents many disabled people, people with double buggies, people with normal buggies from walking and wheeling safely around their neighbourhoods. And yet we're still awaiting a response from the FT on the consultation on pavement parking that closed in November 2020. So there's lots of kind of warm words, I suppose, about um, making walking and cycling more accessible and overcoming barriers. But how much is it actually happening in practice? Adam, perhaps I could come to you for that one. Yeah, so as, a, as I say, I'm quite new to um, all, all of this in the transport world. So my job is often to come in and look at how we do things and whether that's meeting the kind of um, needs of, of, of the sort of stated policy objectives or in the case of um, the mayor, his manifesto for what we want to achieve. And um, so often, the, I would say, the, like with any large organisations that have been going a long time, um, sometimes the policy doesn't always match up with the practice. Um, and that's one of the things that I've identified and, and I'm looking at how we can um, improve on uh, improve on that. So I would say that that we've just launched our local transport um, plan uh, for kind of another consultation. Um, and, you know, I think it's a really good document and, you know, lots of stakeholders have been involved. But 
really it means nothing unless uh, we can deliver that on the ground um, and work with people to deliver that on the ground. So I uh, I think often it's the practice that the where it comes down to, and a lot of this is actually I don't think needing um, needing new new information or new reports. I think it is about people like me and colleagues listening and seeking out that those pieces of data and those reports. So I'm always I don't claim to know everything, but I do uh, I do try to, to to listen. And every time I do listen, I I, I learn something. And if you are say a uh, working in highways as an engineer and you don't go out and seek those opinions and you know, the consultations, let's say, are more like CAD drawings that you need to know what they to look for to know whether they're any good. Mm-hmm. Um, that might not mean that all the kind of lived experiences and all the different needs um, might uh, might come into it in practice. So I think there's a lot of improvement to be uh, to be done. That I've seen a lot of improvement already, um, but I think there's 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 more for all professionals to kind of uh, get educated as much as possible, and um, you know there's lots of great i went to group recently with sustrans and uh, wheels for well-being uh, and uh, university of warwick and and just even then like just learning loads and i'm taking stuff back and we're seeing what we can do and i just encourage people to do that as much as they can Adam, and perhaps we could move, we've, having sort of set the scene perhaps we can move on to what's the opportunity here that we're looking at what's the prize um anila talked about um the lack of the the, the 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 lack of data, I suppose, about the wider benefits that we could expect to see if we got more and different people walking and cycling more, uh, looking beyond just participation. Rachel, would you like to add any anything to that in terms of what the what wider benefits we could expect to see if we were to make walking and cycling more inclusive and appealing to a more diverse range of people? Sure. So thinking about cycling, you know, I've been involved in work using the propensity to cycle tool and the impact of cycling tool um, work um, with James Woodcock, um, Anna Goodman, Robin Lovelace and others. Um, And we've done some really interesting modelling work around some of that and looking at the benefits and the fact that many underrepresented groups, their trips are relatively cyclable in terms of um, distance and hilliness. So, you know, there's a big, if, if we can make um, cycling attractive, if we can make cycling appealing and accessible to those people, um, then, you know, the, the trips they make, scope for mode shift is, is very high. And that's probably why cycling is seen as appealing by many people from underrepresented groups, because they do have trips that could, in theory, relatively easily be cycled. But often the environment um, in a whole range of ways is too hostile. Um, they, do, they don't have the opportunity to cycle. The benefits are also often particularly substantial for people um, from those groups. So just let's think about um, women as an example. So, you know, women often have trips, as I mentioned before, that are chained between different destinations. So they're not so easily served by public transport often. Women also have relatively low access to cars, relatively low car ownership, relatively unlikely to drive. And women from ethnic minority backgrounds, particularly so. So if women are able to access cycling, use cycling for their trips, it can be more important, more beneficial for them than for men in many of those regards. So no wonder in places where the cycling, you know, cycling has been made attractive and accessible for all women cycle more than men because 
they have suitable trips and because the benefits are higher for them as well. You know, the benefits, as Anila was saying as well, we, we need to think about a wide range of benefits. And some of those have been studied, you know, and have been where possible quantified as well. And at one, um, for instance, Jenny Mendel at University College London has done some work on community severance. Um, and, you know, potentially the benefits for um, community interaction, for engagement with other people, for be- people being able to be part of their local community if um, they don't, if their journeys are not restricted by big roads and so on. Similarly, this work around um, older people and older people being able to participate in society and the role that, you know, buses, but also cycling and, and, and walking and play in that, getting people out of their homes, enabling them to interact with each other, with the environment. The benefits from really short trips um, to, to local places in your neighbourhood can be really Really substantial but of course we have to create the environments that enable people to do that that you know with the infrastructure the culture the policy and so on is supporting them to do so and at the moment we're, we're generally unfortunately failing to do that absolutely adam would you like to add anything to that in terms of the wider benefits that we could expect to see um with more and different people walking and cycling yeah i mean i can't sort of stop thinking about the unleashed potential of people in our in our region if we gave them decent transport options and i know that's something that's really motivational for my boss and 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 kind of the the way that we're approaching this so um you know i think in some circles this is about giving people the 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 dignity of, of of choice really about how they move about um but in some cases it might be just giving them some choice about how they move uh, and get about and and i think that's that's uh, something that cycling especially can do but also walking if we make the environment uh safer and uh, and more attractive so um i i often i'm loath to bring it back to to the kind of the, the the economy and and people sort of frown when i do it because it's uh not always about the economy um but Certainly, when I'm engaging with uh, government, one of the key kind of levers and understandings on this is, or misunderstandings on this, is actually what an impact active travel could have on our economy. And every day I think about the school kids that I see being dropped off um, at school because their parents don't have the, 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 the choice to allow them to walk on their own because there aren't enough safe crossings or the, there's too much traffic or it's not safe to cycle. There's no infrastructure. So I think there's lots of opportunities for people if they didn't have to spend X amount of days, X amount of hours a day stuck in traffic, and they were actually um, empowered to 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 you know get on and do whatever it is that they 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 propose to do because and hope to do, aspire to do, because um, most people don't aspire to have to do these kind of awful mundane drop-offs in traffic. Um and and that's the opportunity. And I like your phrase about giving people the dignity of, of choice and people not feeling forced into using a particular, using the car or, or even, you know, these things kind of becoming a stress choice rather than something that they would, they would prefer to do and having that full range of choices. Um, so I suppose we, we, we've looked at, the potential and the scale of the opportunity, but how do we get there? So if we were to look at the broad range of barriers people face to walking and cycling, what would you say as a panel we should tackle first to achieve the greatest impact? Um, can I come to you first, Anila, on that one? 
I think I'd like to flip it and, you know, we, we think a lot about the, the communities and the barriers that communities face, but also we need to think internally in terms of our own organisations and our national agencies in terms of what we could do and how we could do it better um, to be able to 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 gain um, those different um, uh, understanding or that understanding of that lived experience when you are thinking about infrastructure, when you are thinking about routes and transport, when you are thinking about safety. And I think for me, what, what what's important is is around adopting an approach that is around inclusive design. Um, and there's there's lots out there um, about that in terms of well, what does that mean? What are the key principles to inclusive design? But essentially, it's what Adam was saying. You know, it's about how you engage, how you uh, ensure that you're bringing that voice in, not just in terms of consultation. We can we can do consultation to death, can't we? But we 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 need to think genuinely about how we can engage people, and that might mean how do we how do we diversify the people that are on the decision-making groups um, and thinking about how can we have that alternative voice. I, I was doing some work for um, a cycling national cycling organization recently, and and uh, we were talking about one, one of the women was talking about the fact that she did want to bring her inclusion um, contributions into that meeting. It was a kind of um, partnership uh, um, group meeting of different agencies, and she was the only woman on the uh, at the meeting. And so, for her, she didn't feel as confident to be able to bring that inclusion piece in there. So, we need to have those representatives at the table to be able to have that voice. And even it doesn't need to always be people with lived experience. We've all got lived experience um, in, in different ways. And if we can champion and bring those issues to the table, because it's not always going to be at the forefront then um, that can then allow us to think about, well, how can we do things differently and breaking the system in such a way that allows us to, to, to look at the opportunities, to look at, you know, how do we, how do we what's our approach to lighting? Um, you know, for me in my local area, um, I, I, get, I, tra I travel by bike to the train station, but actually um, when I come out the, uh, the, the town and I hit the, the sort of rural part to get to my village, there's no the lighting stops, um, and so for me uh, that for for me as a woman and me as a woman of color, uh, I, I feel um, that that doesn't feel safe for me. So it's so where where was my voice in that to, to think about what that that lighting on that journey looked like on that particular look look like? So I think it is about inclusive design. I think it is about um, diversity. Um, on our on our um, decision making um, uh, um, groups, but it's also I suppose the other side of it is about upskilling communities as well, um, and giving community and thinking about how we can engage at a grassroots level as well to to upskill people. To going back to my point about my imposter syndrome and my 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 confidence is giving people that confidence and the tools to to recognise that actually I can get out there and, and, and cycle and actually the space is for me too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important, the, the, the point around diversity and decision-making, because we know that the transport sector is still, unfortunately, very male-dominated, particularly at a senior decision-making level. So it's how do we bring those more diverse voices and perspectives and experiences in to decision making within the transport sector as well as the people that we involve in and reach through our consultation. And 
and co-argue and co-creation as well rather than just purely consultation Rachel can I come to you next um what do you think we need to tackle first to achieve the greatest impact so um, I was, as well as listening to um, Anila, I was kind of ruminating on we. And sometimes it occurs to me that when I say we, I mean they. Sometimes I mean you and sometimes I mean I. So I'm going to answer a couple of options, sort of prompted by also things I've seen in the Q&A, which maybe we'll come back to as well. So I mean, one really big thing is the funding. And there really is, you know, completely insufficient funding for walking cycling, particularly when you um, look at the amount of money that goes into the roads, um, you know, the roads investment strategy. We really are still dealing with the crumbs. And also, as well as the amount of money, one big problem is the way that money is distributed, the short-term competitive funding, the bidding. It's very, very hard for authorities to co um, collaborate, cooperate, and also to do meaningful engagement, which has to be, you know, long-term with communities. Um, you know, you can't just kind of allocate some funding for six months and then stop doing it. People lose trust. So that's really important. In terms of more of a, a me thing, um, I mean, I do think that, as Anila said, the intersectionality is really important and that we, you know, we do have to look at um, from the perspective of underrepresented groups, you know, and actually, um, it, you know, it's just not possible as well as not desirable. It's not possible to have mass cycling with only white men cycling. <laughs> That's, you know, it's just numerically not possible, but obviously it's not desirable as well. Um, and, you know, the transformational impact of walking and cycling is particularly, you know, it's particularly transformational for those groups at the moment disproportionately often excluded or have particularly unpleasant walking experiences and as opposed to me what I'm sort of trying to do is give more of a voice to some of that research some of those experiences and therefore you know my colleague Aquesiosa's work on black men um, cycling in London you know he and I were kind of really quite shocked when we looked at the research and the fact that the you know the ethnicity gap in cycling in London is a similar size to the gender gap um, and this is more more widely the case in this country and yet there's such a lot of work on the gender gap, which kind of assumes women are white women. Um, and there's there's so little work on the ethnicity gap and, you know, just not a research interest in that. So actually, yeah, for me, sort of learning about that and kind of prioritising those, research, you know, that, that, that research, those researchers and so on, because, you know, that is where we need to be focusing. Um, and very often, you know... We, we know that um, in terms of diversity initiatives, for instance, white women are often the main beneficiaries and it shouldn't be like that. And it shouldn't be like that in terms of focusing on these gaps either. Thanks, Rachel. And Adam, where are you focusing your activity in the West Midlands on tackling barriers to walking and cycling? What's your priorities? Yeah, so so uh, I think the, the, there are a mixture of uh, things that we can do both in the short, medium and, and long term. Um, some of the short term things are quite, you know, I think uh, relatively easy, but um, not seemingly as easy as I thought they might be. Um, but we, we, we need to make sure that we uh, make this as good as possible, as quickly as possible for as many people. Um, and I, I, you know, the urgency on there is definitely at the forefront of my mind. Um, medium, medium, long term, obviously, in the medium term, we have um, quite a you know a significant amount of funding for active travel, um, unprecedented funding uh, for for active travel. So, um, as a devolved region, we have what's called the city regional sustainable transport settlement, um, and that's just over a billion pounds. We're actually using around two hundred and fifty million pounds of, of of that for schemes that will uh, enable active travel. Um, that might be as part of a multimodal corridor like bus priority and cycle priority, but but typically we're we've got a real focus on 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 active travel there. And then of course we have the active travel fund, 
going into so we need to get those schemes built we need to get those schemes to be high quality and they need to be sure that they're the right schemes so this is a mixture of kind of like system change in the kind of how we go about the pace that we build stuff the way we build stuff the kind of stuff we build um and and then in the long term we need to look at um as rachel says we need to look at um certainly security of funding um so one of the main issues for uh, for us as a combined authority, uh, and I know that the mayor has pressed government on this uh, a lot, is it's a short-term nature um, of the settlements that we receive from year to year. So it means we can't uh, hire the rest of people, we can't nurture people, we can't hire graduates because we don't have enough long-term security and funding. So actually, uh, we rely a lot on consultancies, um, and uh, those consultancies, um, you know, are, uh, are are typically good partners, but you know when it comes to like the diversity of our workforce and things like that, that's that they're the kind of like things that we don't talk about in terms of funding the security of funding you know that has a real impact for how we hire people how we nurture people how we um how we provide green jobs you know of the of the future and um, in the short term i just wanted to just mention a few things that that um both we have done and also things that we want to do um that that just kind of food for thought really so the big one here is when I started looking at the plans that we already have, there was that kind of unconscious bias in the types of journeys that were being made. So um, in the West Midlands, about 80% of, of the bus journeys that are made are from, um, from a point to point that's not in an urban centre, not going into the city centre. All our, I say all, a lot of our cycle routes sort of were lines drawn into an urban centre. Um, and and I think that's the kind of thing that we need to to challenge and look at. And in, in fact, we are looking. And I think COVID has um, some of the communities has, has has accelerated that thought process of um, of how it is. But of course, for many people, before COVID was even a thing, they weren't travelling into urban centres and they were kind of forgotten about by by um, some of the system. Um, I also think there's like lots of stuff that that highways authorities do automatically and things that we really want to look at. So one of those things is um, turning the um, pedestrian crossing buttons on to almost instant push where possible. Uh, you know, there are several places in the West Midlands where you might have to wait 45 seconds to cross the road, which feels undignified. It's a waste of time. It make, It's a real highlight for who... Who is valued? Um, so we really need to, uh, to to work on things um, things like that. I think there's pavement parking, uh, of course, uh, legislation that we can push for. There is also, I would say, you know, I see lots of pavement parking on double yellows, which have TROs that are already enforceable, um, and it's about making sure that we enforce what we value uh, as, as as well and get that uh, across. I think you know one tiny thing just that comes in just it's kind of so niche that but it's it highlights what we're up against in terms of changing the system i guess is is you know local councils get a highways maintenance block as part of uh, um, a, the city region sustainable transport settlement now and the dft produce a, a breakdown a formula to produce that and it calculates how many roads kilometers of roads how many cycleways and how many pavements you have of course, because they don't have data for pavements or cycleways, it just says zero. So highways authorities believe that the, the funding for the highways maintenance is only for the roads because that's, that's all that's on the form. Um, one thing we could do instantly is change that. And I know the DFT are working on it, but we could also 
grip pavements first, for example, which would help um, groups that don't uh, own cars and you know, women who often uh, are more likely to be walking short journeys. Some people are going to also more time going on, but forcibly locked in their house because the pavements aren't written outside. That cannot be right. And there's things that we can do right now with a bit of uh, a bit of will. Thank you, Adam. Um, I'm just going to move to audience questions because we've got 10 minutes left and I want to try and get through a few of these. We've touched on the funding um, issue a fair bit uh, in the conversation, but I feel like with active travel, we're making the case again and again for why this is a good thing. And it feels like the case is well accepted and yet still we get decisions where roads far outweigh the funding for active travel. So what do we need to do? Um, to turn that around, what more can we do in terms of making the case? Um, Blake, I'll come to, to you on that one if you have any thoughts. I mean, clearly one of the problems is, is around car dominance, um, the car lobby, the, the assumption that, you know, that the, 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 the traveller is a motorist and so on. And this continues to be a problem, not just in this country. You know, we've seen the current um, situation in the, you know, Germany and Italy and the EU, um, fossil fuel rules and so on. That's happening in other countries happening across the world um, in terms of a failure to challenge um, you know car-based planning car-based interests and so on and and, and often um, you know a worry that um, measures to restrict um, car use um, will you know will lead to the, the kind of backlash that that politicians are simply not willing um, to tolerate and uh, yeah I don't know I don't have an answer to this but I do know that it is not only um, a problem in this country in our towns and cities and so on it, it, it is a wider problem and it, it's very difficult we also have a situation where we haven't institutionalized um, that well planning for walking and cycling it's still offered in many places relies upon you know having a driven a dedicated individual <laughs> like you know many people on this call um, probably who will push that and as soon as that person disappears you know things then stop happening because it's relying on that on that individual and it really needs to be kind of mainstreamed in such a way as you know you don't need someone who's a keen walker you don't need someone who's a keen cyclist kind of pushing things forward these things just happen like they do in many aspects of what Adam was talking about in terms of highway planning and so on. I mean, we have had some successes. I mean, I do, I was thinking, I, I didn't get the chance to say it earlier, but, you know, in terms of um, infrastructure quality, you know, there used to be a time when it was very, very standard to, okay, if we're putting in cycle infrastructure, we'll paint a white line down the footway and we're like, okay, half of that footway for cyclists. And that's no good for cyclists, no good for pedestrians. And at least I think we've moved away from that. We have better cycle infrastructure design guidance. We have a situation where, you know, some parts of the country where there are those dedicated individuals that is enough funding at least temporarily you know the conditions are right you know things can be done but I think we're a long way away from what we would need to get substantial change on the national level with that happening everywhere whether or not there are people like say Adam you know pushing it forward or not. Thanks Rachel. Um, I'd like to move on to Deborah's question. She says, um, as a mum of young black males, we need to include the police and other stakeholders in the discussion as many young black children love cycling together. However, as they bridge into their teens, they're perceived as a threat rather than just a group of kids cycling. Uh, so there's more work needed on, with community groups to ensure our children continue to love and engage in cycling. So Anila, would you like to um, come in on, on that one? What can we do to kind of normalise uh, groups of any kind of, I mean, I, I guess other groups of young people as they get older are seen as a threat if they're all cycling together and, and walking together. How can we address some yeah. of those? Yeah, but the, the, I think with, with, with black young men, 
you know, statistically, we know that they're more likely to be stopped by police. Um, and uh, I actually was in London the other day. I'm from Scotland. Um, I, I live in, in the borders in Scotland, but I was in London. I actually saw it twice, happened twice, that, that two people have been stopped. So, you know, the, the, this is this is systemic discrimination. It's 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 embedded in our society, and unfortunately, that comes through. Uh, then our, our thinking um, uh, when we think about our our our, our roads or systems. Um, and in a way, it, we talk about unconscious bias, but actually it's also conscious bias as well um, in terms of how, how people will be, will be treated. Um, so, yes, how can we normalise it? I mean, one of the there's a great um, project in Shawlands, in, uh, which is an area in Glasgow, which is um, the, there's more than 50 percent of people from an ethnic minority background. And they've set up a Shawlands bike bus, um, which is a—I don't know whether that's a—that's something that's happened across the country. It's a, it's a template, but it's just a great way to get kids involved in in cycling to school, um, and uh, and actually a way to protect people to keep them together. So you're not so you're not in isolation. So that fear of that you will get stopped, or that fear that you you will be treated um, uh, badly because of the colour of your skin or because you're um, a girl. Um, it's it's a way of actually bringing communities and mobilising them to come together to actually have that safe environment to allow you to cycle to school together. Um, so at a young age, you're already starting to learn that actually this is a good thing um, and recognising that taking those those journeys by bike actually can be be something that I can take through my life as I you know as I get older. So it is about creating those um, uh, safe spaces. Sadly, it's it, it's racism exists. Um, uh, we all have to take our, our role in, in challenging that and challenging the systems. But at the same time, um, we've got to we've got to find ways in which we can help mobilise people to get on bikes to be able to get out there, and that might mean investing in creating some safe spaces for um, communities to be able to to achieve that. And that that obviously um, relies on funding, um, and uh, um, and uh, it, it relies on on government priorities to be able to access that funding for those communities. So. There's, it's got to happen at a national level. It's got to, but it's in terms of that systemic change. But it's also about empowering communities to give them the tools to to be able to get out there. Absolutely, and, and as Adam was saying earlier, to create safe spaces for cycling, we need that long term funding so that we can do the longer term engagement with communities rather than just popping in and out and breaking the trust every every time. Um, and. The top, top rated question here is one specifically for you, Adam, actually. Um, is adapted cycle parking longer and wider cycle racks? Uh, so I suppose to accommodate things like cargo bikes or more accessible models of uh, bicycles, something that TFWM is willing to consider incorporating into future designs for infrastructure. I suppose for the width of cycle lanes as well, it's an issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, is the answer. Um, we have already um, made some progress on this uh, with the opening of uh, Coventry, the new Coventry station. Uh, the new Coventry station has secure bike parking um, and it has uh, specific uh, spaces available for adapted cycles um, that are obviously you know, more spacious and um, kind of suit the uh, different needs. So 
Um, we're just at the start of this journey, but absolutely. I think on um, on cycle lanes, it's a really interesting um, it's a really interesting point. And um, every time we change our road layouts, um, you know, it's a it's quite a powerful metaphor for kind of what we value. So you might have seen, you know, in some of our urban centres, we have former dual carriageways which have been turned over to, you know, single traffic lanes with bus lanes, for example, which is a, you know, an example of changing what you what you value. Um, there are there's always kind of engineering issues and and, and problems with uh, creating new schemes that kind of play on that constrained space. Um, I have one right now that's live, I won't talk about the details, but uh, ultimately it means that the cycle lane width would not be suitable for non-standard cycles. I won't accept that. And I think there's a view that something is better than nothing. Uh, and I, I just don't agree. Um, so we have to get this right for, for everybody um, and not accept kind of poor options because actually we've been doing poor options for quite a long time and our modal share for cycling has stayed exactly the same so we shouldn't keep doing it and expect anything to to, to change so we have to make sure it works for for all users and not just the ones that are already doing it absolutely um well i can see we are rapidly running out of time we've got two minutes left um so i'll just kind of sum up some of the key points that came out for me from that discussion. Um, I think data, whenever we talk about inclusion, data seems to come up again and again, and the inadequacy of the data that we collect, the lack of disaggregation, the lack of understanding of the wide variety of different journeys and the intersectionality of different, different aspects of um, people's experiences. How do we capture that? How do we stop just kind of understanding the journeys that are easy to measure, as you were saying, Adam, we're very good at um, designing solutions for the commute in and out of city centres because that's easy to measure and we can see it. But what about the more complex trip chaining done by women, for example, that, that you touched on, Rachel? How good are we at measuring that? And if we were better at measuring that, how would we design transport differently, um, including cycling and walking infrastructure to facilitate those journeys? And again, and also, I guess, a key point that came through for me was the issue around diversity of perspectives, not just within the transport sector itself, but also in those we consult. And how can we do more than consult? We should be co-creating to ensure those solutions meet the needs of the communities that we're serving. And it all comes back to funding. We can't do that in-depth consultation and, and co-creation without long-term funding certainty and a move away from that short-term competitive model that we've we've become stuck in an endless cycle of so that's because some of the things that popped out for me but um such a fascinating conversation thank you audience for your questions thank you to our speakers rachel anelia anila adam uh really appreciate your time this afternoon we'll be hosting another urban transport next event very soon uh, so keep an eye out for that in the meantime thanks again to our wonderful panel and to everyone who took part um, in, the, in the conversation. Thank you and goodbye.